Please be seated. And uh, community groups, I'll be giving more information shortly. <laughs> Maybe a few of you surprised by Pastor Paul's passionate announcements. I love it. Um, but yeah, we are hoping to get uh, quite a uh, more of a church-wide involvement this year. And we'll, we'll have those details out shortly. It's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Um, Chapman University last year, 2016, they asked 1,511 uh, people throughout the United States. Uh, well, they gave them a survey. They listed 79 different things that you could be afraid of. And they asked them to respond. Are you, you, know, do you, do you, are you afraid of these things or greatly afraid of these things? And uh, at the very top of the list, in terms of what most people out of these 1,000, I have no idea where they got these people from, but except they're from the U.S. of A. Uh, the, the number one thing that got the most responses out of this, and I don't know, maybe you can I'll give you a couple seconds to maybe take a guess as what it might be, but the number one thing that these people said they were either afraid or very afraid of, okay, slightly over 60% of those surveyed, corrupt government officials came in at number one. Number two was at uh, 41% terrorist attacks. Number three at 39.9% not having enough money for the future. 38% um, people I love dying. 37% identity threat, uh, theft kind of related to uh, credit card fraud at 35.5%. Reptiles came in at 33.2%. Reptiles, yes. I'm assuming that's like snakes and things of that sort. Um, it's, it, you know, it's interesting, 79 things. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how seriously to take this survey because 10.2% uh, said that they are afraid or very afraid of zombies. 8.9% said ghosts. And 7.8% said clowns. Afraid of clowns. Uh, I'm kind of with that. I, I, clowns are a little bit scary. Hope no one's a clown, and if, I, if you are, I'm sorry. I meant no offense. <laughs> I, it's interesting. It's interesting. You could Google it and look at this survey. It's it's available. Um, and the reason why I, I start us off with this today is because you look at Mark chapter four, starting in verse thirty-five to forty-one. It's the end of chapter four. We come across a passage where I think a predominant emotion that we can see and read about here is the emotion of fear, right? fear. And I think we can relate to the fear that we see here. You got a group of disciples. They've uh, been following Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher. Uh, he's performed some pretty amazing miracles. He's, he's healed people. He uh, healed a paralytic person uh, walking now, uh, cleansed a, a person of leprosy, which you know, just those kinds of things don't happen every day. And uh, he's been really, th the teachings that, that have been coming from him, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. You know, this guy is awesome. He's not just an average rabbi. So, uh, you know, maybe up to this point, they're wondering, all right, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And then we find him on this evening here, uh, getting into a boat, and he gets in the boat with his disciples, and they set off from the Sea of Galilee. It's not a, not a very big, uh, big lake, but a, a prominent one back then and, you know, still in that area today. What's interesting is that uh, in 1986, two brothers, I'm not going to 
two brothers, they were fishermen, and in 1986, one of their hobbies, they, they, they considered themselves to be amateur archaeologists. Well, uh, what happened was, because of the drought, the, 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 the water level in the Sea of Galilee had been going down, going down, going down. 1986, they find a boat. A boat. Apparently, it was their dream uh, come true, and 12 days, next 12 days, frantic, before the water le levels could rise again, and you know, everyone's involved in this huge project now. It's an amazing discovery. And they found a boat that, through uh, carbon dating, radiocarbon dating, and because of the pottery that they found in the boat, they date back basically to the time of Jesus. Basically to the time of Jesus. In fact, you can Google this. It's, the nickname for this boat is called the Jesus Boat. It's called the Jesus Boat not because they think Jesus actually was on this boat or his disciples were actually on this very boat, but that this boat is an amazing find, an important discovery for Jewish and Christian people because it shows what kind of boats were around, what type of boats. And it helps us to imagine even this story here in Mark chapter 4. The boat is only 27 feet long. 27 feet. If you're having trouble understanding or picturing that, think of a first down is 30 feet. So one yard less, nine yards long. Right? You've got people today that can run that in a few mere seconds so fast, right? Well, maybe even less, right? Do the math. They run 40 yards in 4.5, 10 yards in less. Yeah, do the math. <laughs> uh, 27 feet long. It's uh, seven and a half feet uh, wide, right? And a height of about four and a half, uh, 4.3 feet at uh, Jesus boat. I think it's interesting because you have this boat that they're on. It, they estimate 12 to 15 people could fit on, on, a, on this kind of typical boat. And then you have a sudden storm. A sudden storm would not be that weird for the Sea of Galilee. Uh, one of the things that's really, really picturesque about this lake is it's 700 feet below sea level and then right surrounding it are these hills and these hills would get green during the spring, you know, brown other times of the year. Hey, if you're from Southern California, you know what brown hills look like. And uh, you get that contrast, the, the, the deep blue of the, the, the water, the lake, and then either the green hills or the brown hills. But if you go a little further, like 30 miles away, you can, you can find mountains like Mount Hermon that's uh, over 9,000 feet above sea level. So you're talking about a tremendous 9,000 feet above sea level, 700 feet below sea level. You're talking about a huge, huge sort of uh, altitude change. And apparently what happens if the winds are coming from the east, it takes all of that cold air from the mountains. It mixes with the warm air from the sea and you would create, you know, warm air rises cold. And you would get this all of a sudden strong easterly winds and storms. Even today they have a name for it. Um, I forget what it is. But for those easterly winds that would come up in the evening. And in Mark chapter 4 though, it's not just your normal easterly winds. Something is a little different tonight, right? It's different enough that you have some seasoned fishermen who are on this boat, and all of a sudden, what do they notice? This great windstorm arises, verse 37, and notice the word great. You're going to see it three times in this passage. This great windstorm arises. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, I don't know about you guys, but this would definitely be one of my top fears, right? If I'm on a small boat, you know, 
nine yards in length, maybe. And the waves are crashing over and into the boat, and it's filling up with water. You know, it's very interesting. The, the Jesus boat that they found had been repaired so many times that they found different types of wood. It was patched up. It was broken, repaired. I, and, you know, in my opinion, it didn't look that seaworthy to me, but I don't know. I, I don't know enough about fishing to, to comment on that. But regardless, you see water filling in, and hey, I would be deathly afraid. Deathly afraid. I can barely swim a few lengths of a swimming pool, right, before I have to grab the wall or stand or something, you know. I could go back and forth a few times. Not that impressive. But now you, you mix in these waves that are at least going uh, four and a half feet high because it's spilling into the boat. And, you know, I probably last a few seconds in that kind of So, you, you're, I know I'm spending a little bit, maybe too much time, kind of painting that picture and helping you to imagine what's going on. But now we see the disciples, and it's not a big boat. It's not like they had to go find Jesus. He's on the stern, asleep on a cushion. Right? And, uh, you know, maybe this just blew their minds. How could, how could he be sleeping? It's very interesting. The, the one time that... Anyone in the Gospels have written about Jesus sleeping, right? This is the one occurrence of it in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You, you find him one time that they, doesn't mean he only slept once in his 30 years. It just means this was the one time that they thought it was significant enough to write about it. He was asleep in the middle of this great windstorm. Probably <laughs> disconcerting at, at the very least, and apparently very upsetting to his disciples. Because they run to him, they wake him up, and they say to him, Teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? Now, at this point, let's pause just a little bit to think about this, all right? Because I, I find this kind of interesting. You, you've, you've got season Fishermen who should have been the ones who kind of, I don't know, should have been used to this or the ones taking charge. I mean, they're the ones who've been on the water and in the boat. But instead, they run to Jesus who, you know, anyways. I find it interesting because why did they wake him up? Why did they ask him, aren't you, hey, don't you care we're about to die? We'll get into this in a few minutes. But anyways, they, they wake him up. It's a fearful question. Their question seems pretty desperate. It's, it's so raw. I love how Mark um, preserves this for us. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it in any way. He doesn't rewrite it. He doesn't try to make the disciples look a little bit more courageous or bolder. And instead, he just tells it the way it happened. We, 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 we think that he probably heard firsthand from Peter on the boat, who probably remembered, right, really vividly what happened. I don't have time to get into that today, but we can, if you want to talk to me about it later, why we think it's Peter. But anyways, he, he, he records for us this really raw and actually pretty rude question. Teacher, you know, back then you wouldn't talk to your rabbi like this. Teacher, don't you care? Don't you care we're about to die? You know, you read between the lines, it's like, hey, we're here 
I don't know, maybe they're trying to, you know, bucket the water out, or maybe they're trying to survive, or maybe they're afraid for their lives. And then you see Jesus there, teachers is kind of asleep on the, on the stern, and they're like, ooh, <laughs> right? Rabbi, you, you apparently don't care for us at all. And I find it very interesting because I wonder if this is a reflection on the way that even today, many years later, we respond to God when we are faced with some kind of crisis. Something that causes us to be frustrated or afraid or wondering why, why wouldn't Jesus do this or why wouldn't he respond a certain way? Jesus, don't you care about me? The sad thing is that Often for, if you're like me, it doesn't take a near-death experience for us to come to Christ with these kinds of questions. It could be much less serious. And you and I, we can, we can come to Christ with these kinds of thoughts. Why don't you care about me? Don't you care what's happening in my life? Don't you care what I'm going through? Don't you care what's, what my heart is going through? Don't you care about my emotions or what I have to experience or go through, etc., etc.? This is not foreign to us. And we can totally side with the disciples on this evening, right? I sleep. On the boat. What's, I think, even more interesting to consider about this situation is why are they even on the boat, in the middle of the sudden storm. They're there because they decided, and, and we looked at these uh, passages in the past few weeks as we're going through Mark, we looked at these passages where these men dropped everything and decided to follow this man who said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They said, okay, let's do that. Let's follow Christ. I, I don't know if this is a fair question or not. I wonder if in their mind they had a more glorious picture of what life would be like, becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming a fisher of, of men. Maybe there was more rewards in mind. Maybe there was more glory in mind. Maybe there was more comfort in mind. Maybe there was something to the effect that my life will be better in this way if I follow this man. But being close to Christ and following him led them right into the middle of this storm, a storm that they feared would be the end of their lives. Jesus shows, I think, some remarkable humility. And what does he do? He wakes up, right? Now, right away I know he's a better Christian than me because if, you know, when I get woken up, I'm never this kind of calm, right? I don't know, I don't know how you guys are when you're in a deep sleep and someone wakes you up. Like, whoa, whoa, right? My wife always gets mad at me. She says I shake my leg a little. Not really in control of that, honey. I'm like asleep, have a sleep. But he calmly wakes up, and what does Christ do? Rebukes the wind and says to the sea three words. 
peace. Be still. Now, I wonder if there was any moment, any split second while this is going on that his disciples thought, we followed a crazy guy. <laughs> he is speaking to the sea and the wind to <laughs> be still. It's almost, in my mind, an act of desperation, right? You're in the middle of this storm. You're afraid you're going to die. He stands up and he talks to the storm. What is that? Uh, I'm not sure that that's what I would have expected when I wanted to wake Jesus up. Probably would have been more along the lines of like, hey, let's help get this water out of the boat that's coming in. In Psalm 107, um, starting in verse 23, uh, it's a really interesting psalm. I love this psalm, but I don't have time to go over everything. I'm just going to really quickly read a few verses. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. So we're talking about God here. He's he's described in this psalm as, as the one who brings this storm, great storm. In fact, the waves are huge. He describes it this way, they mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, and then the result of this storm is that for the sailors, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Now look at verse 29. This is the one verse I want us to shoot up there. Psalm 107, 29. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. You notice the language? Right? Doesn't this sound really familiar to what Mark retells in his account of what happened in Mark 4 on the Sea of Galilee many, many years later? You see, Psalm 107, I think, presents to us uh, a very important teaching that went out to the people of Israel. Because often, the one thing that, uh, is, you know, it's true for us today, but especially back then, the one thing that just felt like it was completely out of your control was what would happen with nature, the wind. How can you control the wind? Ecclesiastes, the wind is described That same word, that breath, the wind, is the vanity of vanities because you can't grasp it. You can't hold it. You can't control it. The wind will go wherever it wants to go. It'll go one direction, then the next direction. It'll be strong, then weak, then disappear all of a sudden. You can't predict and control the wind. But there is God. The one true living God who can actually do what? Make the storm be still and the waves of the sea hushed, quiet, silent. And that kind of language was reserved to describe the almighty creator, God. And here in Mark chapter 4, if we go back to that passage and we see Jesus' response, we see now what maybe the disciples thought was a mere mortal, maybe? I don't know, maybe they were confused. Maybe there was something more they recognized in him by this point because of some of the healings that he's done. But they see him and they hear him say what only God can say. Peace. Be still. 
one of the things I think when I was uh, younger in ministry, and it's still kind of still very much true today, I guess, as a pastor, is sometimes when people are hurting or when people are struggling through something, and you know, it's it, there have been so many situations and circumstances where I don't I don't know what I can say to someone. What can I what can I really say? What can I really do? There's sometimes things in life that happen, and it's tragic, it's painful, it's hard, and I'm thinking, man, what, what, what can I do or say? Right? There's books written about this, about how to pastor someone going through tragedy, how to counsel someone, how to talk to someone. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't turn to his disciples at this very moment and say, hey, like, hey, let's hang in there. Let's not be afraid. Or he doesn't do something to try to comfort them. He turns to the actual storm and he commands the storm to be still. It's night and day what we do versus what God does. Maybe if we're good people and we try, we try to bring comfort, we try to bring encouragement, we try to help them through something. Jesus goes to the root of the problem here, and he has the power to still the storm. And then after he rebukes the storm, he turns to his disciples, and now he rebukes them. His second rebuke, I think, cuts to the heart because he says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? For his disciples at this great time of trial, this great moment of crisis, I don't know if it's that they had zero faith. You know, the other authors, um, Matthew and Luke, they don't record as raw a version as Mark does. They record the disciples having weak faith or little faith. I think that's very interesting, maybe. (laughs) It gives them... you know, it's interesting. You, you, you have a, 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 look, today we can be believers and we could be disciples. We could be people of the faith. But we can come across moments of crisis where in that moment, our faith is weak and our fear is great. And I think that's what happened to these men. This the disciples are in the company of Jesus and they're in the boat with him and in a way their faith failed them. Right? And Jesus rebukes them. I think it's amazing how real those words are today, right? Because it, it sounds literally like something that Jesus could have said to us so many moments of our life. So many moments of crisis, so many moments of testing, so many moments of trial or perseverance or hardship or struggle or pain or bitterness. So many times, over and over and over again, Jesus probably could have said this to you and I. Why are you still afraid? Have you still no faith? And then... You know, you think about this, right? You, you think about 
they went from this near-death experience, the water is jumping into the boat, everything's going crazy, they think they're drowning, they go, wake up Jesus, he stands up and he says three words, and then all of a sudden the Bible describes what? A great, wow, complete opposite, right? You see, the wind ceases and there was a great calm. Try to imagine that. Going from all of the, you know, water everywhere, splashing everywhere, you're getting wet, you're trying to figure out how to survive, you're thinking there's probably a million thoughts going through your mind, you're going to drown, you're going to die, Jesus is asleep, you're going to go wake him up, and then all of a sudden he says three words and it's complete opposite. The lake is like glass. The wind disappears. You would think... Yeah, praise the Lord. Yes, we are saved. Get on your knees. Thank Jesus. I don't know, whatever it is. Think, I get to see this person again. I get to do this again. I get to eat this fish again. I get to eat this bread again. Oh, it's not my last time on a boat. And, you know, all of the thoughts that could have gone through your head and the thankfulness, the gratefulness, the joy. But instead, verse 41 says, and this is the third time we see the word great. They were filled with what? Great fear. Great fear. I don't know if you guys know who David Blaine is. (laughs) This is a really bad illustration, but I'm just going to go with it, all right? I'm going to go with it. Some people call David Blaine a magician, a street magician, an illusionist. Some people even call him just simply an endurance artist. Whatever you want to call him, he does some interesting things. And he's gotten famous because he's had the opportunity to do them on TV, on video. And he's gotten famous enough where he could go into celebrities' homes and perform magic tricks for them. If you ever see any of these things, and I'm not telling you you should go watch it or anything like that. It's not that special when you compare it to what we see here in Mark chapter 4. But what's interesting is there are times where David Blaine will do something and the reaction is priceless. People running to the other side of the room, people cursing and shock and fear, people feeling nauseous. Like, how do you get that kind of response from a magic trick? He does this one trick. I, it's, it's really gross, but he makes three live frogs just appear out of, his, out of his throat. It's crazy. And you see people, like, literally, like, they don't know what to do with that. I think it's kind of funny. And again, I, I did preface this saying this is not a great illustration, so bear with me here. Right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine being on that boat? And Jesus doing what he did. Because all of a sudden, The presence of this man in the boat, who has to be more than just a man. Who is this guy? What kind of powers does he have? What is he able to actually do? What just happened? He spoke three words. The wind listened. The waves listened. This is not... Normal, and now what you have and it's staring you in the face is the very possibility. And it's the possibility at this point because you're not sure what to make of it. 
that the man in the boat is actually God himself. And you are now in the presence of the creator. Is he God? Does he know everything? Does he know all my thoughts? Does he know all my sins? Does he know all of my weaknesses? Is this the God who can do all things, who's come to save, who can speak to the winds and to the waves? Is this God? And so you have that very real question. Who then is this? And that was a terrifying reality to even think about. That God would somehow be in the boat with you. I wonder if because their faith was not yet fully developed, they were still on that journey, right? We're going to see it all throughout Mark. I mean, you would think after this event, they would be like, yes, he is God and everything, right? But, you know, you're going to see. You're going to see the disciples still struggle with doubt. And who are we to judge? That's the story of our lives as well. But, you know, from, from Mark chapter 1, the, the thing that Mark wanted to get across to his readers, to the people who would come across his letter, there was one thing he wanted to make sure everybody understood, and that's this. Jesus was not just another teacher, but was God himself. And he is retelling this story to show us, and everybody who would ever listen or read this, you cannot just say Jesus was another guy, a great teacher or a great leader, although he was those things. He was God himself. For the disciples, they weren't ready for that, maybe. It was unsettling, fearful, terrifying. It's interesting, right? They go from fear to even more fear. So what does this story uh, teach us today? I think there's a couple things for us to consider and to remember, to think about. One, I think we shouldn't be surprised if following Christ leads us into moments of crisis. I think it's a mistake to think that somehow the minute you become a Christian and the minute you become a part of the church, your life is going to be this, you know, fairy tale story of everything is perfect. And I don't even think we need the Bible to tell us this. I think we can just look at our lives and those around us. But I also think that there are going to be very real moments of crisis. Not all of them, but there will be very real moments of crisis where Christ is trying to strengthen us, develop us. He wants us to grow. For the disciples on that boat, this was part of the process for them. They would come out of this having asked an important question, having gone through some really important emotional swings, but now they're wondering, is this God? Who is this? And I think ultimately they would need all of these experiences and all of these moments. It would, there would be this cumulative effect 
that after Christ goes through his death and resurrection, they would be able to stand, and for all of the rest of their lives, they would be able to say, he was the Son of God. He has died and risen again. He is the one worth living and dying for. And I wonder if for us today, that we will also go through some of these things and these moments and crises. And finally is this. The question that he asked the disciples is maybe a question we need to ask ourselves more regularly. Are we still afraid? Are we so afraid that it even causes our faith Doubt, to not be able to trust him, to struggle. Because it wasn't a, uh, for a lack of heart knowledge. I think it was this fear that so gripped them. It's just their faith was weak at that moment. And maybe for us today, there are times we have to remind ourselves that it's not just that Jesus was able to still and quiet the wind and the seas back then, but that he is still able. And that he still does still and quiet the storms today. That God is a God of love and mercy puts a cap on evil, a cap and lid on sin, There is grace for us every day of our lives. Amen? Even in the midst of crisis. And so I think our encouragement is, let's replace our fear with faith. Let's develop it. Let's grow it. Let's strengthen it. Let's not be so busy in our lives that we forget who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing. Let's not get so caught up in who we are and what we're able to do that when we face crisis, we doubt who he is. We're unable to trust him. Let's ask the Lord to fill our hearts with strength and courage and faith. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just this reminder in Mark chapter 4 of who you are. You are God, the creator, the king, and even the wind and the seas have to obey your voice. With a mere word, you can control what seems impossible to us. And we forget sometimes that being your child means we get to enter into the presence of the creator king. Knowing that you are for us, that you do care for us, that you do care for us us to not be afraid. Instead, help us to have great faith. Pray these things in Jesus' name.